Today on the MCJ Capital Series, our guest is Fabian Heilemann, founder and CEO of Anu. I was excited for this one because Anu is a new kind of venture firm. And similar to my journey, Fabian is a longtime entrepreneur. And after several successful exits, he was very concerned about climate. And it was just kind of a slippery slope. He started with his personal carbon footprint and then evolved to looking at what he could do internally when he was a traditional financially oriented venture capitalist, and then looked at the footprints of the portfolio companies of that firm, and then ultimately came to realize that he wanted to build a new kind of firm that's an investment firm that puts impact front and center without being concessionary in any way from a return standpoint. We have a great discussion in this episode about Fabian's journey to starting Anu, some of the core principles that Anu stands for, tactically, how they go about it, where they are on that journey, how they got going, and where Fabian sees Anu going in the future, and of course, how that fits in to his thoughts on the broader transition and what we can do collectively to accelerate progress. But before we start... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Liu. And I'm Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, Fabian Heilemann, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason, for having me. Well, I can't believe this is the first time we are ever speaking. We share many portfolio companies, and I've known your brother for quite a while, and just have been a big fan from a distance. And we also have similar stories in terms of being entrepreneurs in more traditional tech and then pivoting to focusing on climate and impact, with the difference that I'm building an institutional fund after never being a VC, and you spent six and a half years in between actually being a real VC. So, so I feel like I've got a lot to learn from you in this episode and otherwise. Let's say every journey has its pros and cons, and certainly there's quite some learnings that I can transfer from the time of being a general partner at Early Bird, a pan-European large early-stage VC platform, into what we're building today at Anu. But sometimes maybe it's also the freshness and, so to say, the greenfield approach that you are taking that has its benefits. Like anything else, there's never a right time and never a wrong time, but every time you pick has trade-offs, and no one can answer which are the right trade-offs other than you. And you might get it wrong, which is okay, as long as you dust yourself off and fix it. You get up one more time than you've been knocked down. It's all going to be fine in the end. And also, I mean, building a Climate Impact BC, for me, is also not that much different from the five, six companies that my brother and I founded and built like operationally in the last 22 years. So I don't even treat it really like as a financial institution, but really take a more entrepreneurial approach to it and thinking about product market fit, pivoting if needed, adjusting, you know, dynamically to the market environment. So in that respect, for me, this is, so to say, an impact entrepreneurial endeavor in the financial industry. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I'll make one other comment and then we'll get into some context to frame the discussion for terms, which we usually do up front, but that's okay. An institutional LP who we're in process with somewhere in the process, who knows with these big murky institutional piece, but they asked one of my partners, like, does Jason consider himself a VC or becoming a VC? And 
The answer is to what you were saying, like, I'm a builder. I don't consider myself like a professional capital allocator. Like our business model is venture, but like on any given day, I feel much more like a founder. And so in that respect, even though it's a new sport, it's quite familiar. But taking it from the top, maybe before we get into your journey, just tell me a bit about Anu and what you do as a firm. So with Anu and indeed phonetically here, a new era of impact venture capitalism to which our team is seeking to contribute in the grander scheme of things. At Anu, we're basically a climate technology focused early stage firm that is headquartered in Berlin, Germany, but investing, let's say, 80% of the portfolio across Northern Europe, including the Nordic countries, Scandinavia, UK, and then the German-speaking home markets, including Switzerland, Austria, Germany. And in doing that, we are basically, say, capitalizing on the three different pillars of our 20 plus years of entrepreneurial and investor, and then also later climate journey. We'll get to that in a second. And basically distilling the best of the DNA, the experience, the patterns, the frameworks, the sparring into how we add value to the portfolio. It sounds like just from the, the little bit of research that I've done that it was kind of a slippery slope where as you and your brother had a, an awakening about the gravity of the problem, you started with your personal footprints and then it was kind of one step at a time. And then it was as a firm and then it was the portfolio companies of the firm. And then it was like, well, what's next? And then you came to put it front and center. Can you just talk a little bit about the decision to put climate front and center in your work and also how you got to building anew and whether that was a linear process or had some twists and turns to it? First of all, I think it's important to know we're in our, my brother, late 30s, me, early 40s. Already, you know, when we're in our late 20s, we were in that, say, fortunate position of having a first larger scale entrepreneurial success with a B2C marketplace, not climate or impact related at all, called Daily Deal, which was backed by Insight. And we sold that to Google in 2011. And that put us kind of in a situation of certain, let's say, independence in our lives. And then bought it back, I read, but I'm sure we could spend a whole episode just on that. Yeah, I mean, we were then in this, say, golden cage being employed managers in the large and massive Google organization, including the famous Google Matrix that was then kind of, you know, put on top over us. And we were, as being entrepreneurs at heart, we learned a lot, but we also suffered a lot. And then later, the opportunity to buy that business back from Google after there had a, been a strategic shift within Google's product strategy in the Google offers and payment space to which we were associated. We indeed, we bought it back, loss-making, restructured it to break even, sold it a second time in late 2015 to an e-commerce holding from Germany. That's a whole different conversation. But going back to this point, early independence and back in those days, 2011, 2012, we were still defining success basically in a, say, traditional financial capitalist way. So success as basically the maximization of a mix of shareholder value and personal wealth and revenues, employees, yes, also paying taxes and contributing to you know, public infrastructure. But that was a very, let's say, traditional definition, how we thought about success in our lives as entrepreneurs. 
And we continued on that route for another two, three years, started more companies, the latest of which is Forto. We started late 2015, which is today a unicorn logistics technology backed by SoftBank, and which my brother has also been leading as a CEO up until about two years ago. And around that time, 2016, we kind of as citizens started plunging, so to say, into the subject matter of the climate crisis and, you know, the books and movies of Al Gore and then 10 billion, certainly also, let's say, a pivotal book for us or kind of catching our attention. And we said to ourselves, so if the scientific consensus back in the day already is, if we take it as a given, then we are just on a super difficult trajectory as humanity, like globally. And the global south even more so suffering the consequences and the global north, but ultimately it will affect everyone in a dramatic way. And so our immediate response by not changing, so to say, our business setup and everyday you know, business focus overnight. You were a regular VC and Ferry was running Fordo at the time, yes? Exactly. We were running a traditional, like hardcore financial capitalist profit central companies, one on the operational side, backed by generalist VC, and the other one being early bird being a generalist VC, two billion assets under management, pan-European fintech enterprise software, whatnot. And that's what we were doing at the time. And we even continued doing that for several years as our, so to say, day jobs. But from those points where we came to realize, so to say, how bad the crisis actually is and how daunting the trajectory looks like globally, we took these first steps immediately of changing our lifestyles. And I was an avid pilot, did lot of, lots of my you know, European business trips on my own plane and loved it. And and ultimately sunsetted it, tried to get uh, sustainable aviation fuel, which wasn't possible at the time. Still today, it's tough in small scales if you're not like a major airline. Stopped flying, adopted a fully vegetarian diet, drastically reduced long-distance flying, said only one long-distance flight a year, no, as, avoid domestic flights as much as possible, use rail infrastructure and put renewable electricity to our private homes. So that was kind of the first step. And then also pledge, becoming members at Founders Pledge, David Goldberg, where we're still today the ambassadors for the German tech ecosystem, pledging a few percent of our proceeds to high-impact charity. That's kind of where we started, 2016, 2017. And then, having quantified all of that and you know tens of tons that we had, so to say, brought home of carbon equivalents, we were thinking about what are the bigger levers that we can pull to make a more meaningful contribution and not just like a drop in the ocean. And this is how we then, on a self-taught way from 2018, started looking into company carbon footprinting for tech businesses. And Forto, but also, of course, the early bird portfolio was kind of our sandbox. And then at some point, we realized in 2019 that we wanted to share the insights that we had gained, uh, frameworks, toolkits, etc., more broadly with the ecosystem and why keep it to ourselves and try if we can see uh, if we can make kind of an you know indirect impact in our circle of influence, not like beyond our circle of direct control. And this is then how Leaders for Climate Action came about that we founded as a basically NGO or nonprofit organization based in Berlin with a handful of fellow climate conscious entrepreneurs. And today it's six, seven people full time and 1,700 companies that adopted the pledges and use all of the collective insight that has been accumulated there to decarbonize their operations in terms of measuring reducing and then offsetting on an annual basis and reporting against those pledges. And it's just great to see how, at least in our industry, many people, you know, 
think progressively and are also willing to reflect on their own policies and how they run their companies and how they can contribute effectively and in a measurable way. And so Leaders for Climate Action was basically still on the nonprofit side, was our first, so to say, meaningful step. And then my brother, you know, he gave a TED Talk, wrote a book on climate action for entrepreneurs, Climate Action Guide, which spread out throughout the European tech ecosystem. And then I initiated at early bird the climate tech practice, which was kind of the first step to unify this desire to make a climate impact with the for-profit core business angles that we still, you know, had like 10, 12 hours a day. And that was up until, let's say, 2020. Yeah? And then at some point we realized that it will be tough to fully, so to say, live up to the impact aspirations that we both, you know, continue to develop within Forto, the early bird, so within, so to say, these established organizations that were not set up to be impact-centered or not set up to be climate impact organizations per se, and that would need to undergo like mass transformation at the core, encompassing incorporating the buy-in of all of the major stakeholders if you really wanted to take it far. And that realization basically brought us to the point where we said, Let's try, you know, take some of our private wells and let's try if we can pilot in the evenings and weekends a investment strategy that is basically in, in European terms that is Article 9, SFDR, even Article 9 plus, And that is located exactly at this intersection of measurable, interlocked, additional, meaningful climate impact and still top quartile financial returns, market rate returns. This was, uh, so to say, the hypothesis. And we did that for two years, basically 2020, 2021, on the evenings and weekends. And and that, this, what we call... Single LP or double LP, you and your brother? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's one entity from which we jointly, you know, we act always from the same entities, even though we are two individuals. But the thing is that our point of view on the world and also the role that technology can or should play and on regulatory, on policy and all these matters, our point of view is, let's say, 99% identical. And that makes it easy for us to also always bundle our resources and be more powerful than if we were acting, so to say, on each on our own accounts. So that was indeed basically two people, but a single LP structure. And today that this pilot is at 2.3x and whatever, 30-something gross IRR. And we took that basically as a proof point for us to really take that basically, you know, bold step of leaving firms that were doing so well and are so established in such a good trajectory as early birth and four to and really at that age with collectively the two of us have five children right now, they really take that effort and start again, like a sixth time, so to say, in 22 years, start again from scratch and build anew into an institutional grade climate impact fund. And that's what we commenced early 2022. And that's where we are today with a team of 11 people, kind of pan-European, Spanish, Scottish, German, 70% female, by the way, also on senior level. That's where we are today, two people on the in-house impact team. And our predominant focus areas are energy transition and carbon removal. When you look at it from a thematic focus areas within the portfolio and also the thesis and the in-house research that we are doing. So before we get into a new specifically, one question that comes to mind just listening to that story is if these Article 9 funds or Article 9 Plus, I think you said, are setting out to be top quartile return funds, then you mentioned it was difficult to 
achieve the impact you want it to have in the context of a more traditional firm, if you truly can deliver top quartile returns or make a compelling case that you have the chance to, then where's the issue in terms of doing it with the traditional structure? Well, let's separate the structure, the legal structures, and maybe even the LP structures. Let's separate that from the DNA of the firm. And when there is a firm, and if you pick any, yeah, is it Excel, Index, Ballard, and Early Bird, Lakestar, HV Capital, no matter. But all these firms have in common that they are 20 to 25 years old. Basically, they have their mold for success. And that mold is anything but values or impact-driven. And in order to execute an Article 9, or even, as we like to say, Article 9 plus strategy that incorporates lifecycle assessments and impact modeling, so that has high bars on the impact side, you are basically completely crushing the DNA and all the decision-making heuristics, the way the investment committee works, the way it makes decisions, the way it thinks even, I mean, we are honest, even the way they think about success. What we are doing today with Anu follows a different idea of what success is, a different definition even of success, not in a communist, socialist, anarchist way, but in an augmented way so that we basically started or coming from this legacy of, say, traditional liberal financial capitalist definition of success and then augmented it with the planetary or climate component and also with the social or societal component. And therefore, measure our success, so to say, in a threefold way, where all of these established firms are used to measuring it in a one, so to say, in a singular, in a siloed way. And if you, and prove me wrong, but I haven't seen a single of the top 10 or top 20 European firms in VC that have credibly transitioned really as a firm, not just with a pocket where they throw a ticket here and there and LP say, oh, it's nice that you also did a climate tech deal for almost political correctness. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. That's happening in the market. Yeah? There is, so to say, some pressure also from the institutional LP side to be more, say, in the first place, impact, and then partially also a little bit of impact-minded, yeah? But I haven't seen a single firm that has successfully transformed itself at this very core from a purely IRR, TPI, financial KPIs within legal business envelope <laughs> frame into an actual scientific methodology-driven climate impact firm. And that's why ultimately we came to the conclusion this needs to be done basically in a greenfield approach where you ensure also across every, be it five or 20 or 100 people on the team at some point, whatever, but where you also ensure like a 100% mission alignment across the team and everybody is in for mobilizing capital to contribute to addressing the climate crisis. And also everybody is in for contributing to the systemic transition in alternative assets or in and PE and then VC so as a subset to contribute to that transition and to inspire others and to open source methodology and educate. And that is just such a different game we're playing with so different stakeholders. Also, when I think of the DNA of the entrepreneurs that we back, it's such a different game. And I wouldn't say it's a different asset class than generalist VC, but certainly it's basically, it's like a sister or so. It's not a subset, it's not a subcategory of traditional VC. When your brother and you were sitting around the table, either physically or virtually, talking about how you saw this gap and how there are constraints with the existing institutions to be able to really have the 
biggest impact that you could and build the type of firm that you envisioned from the ground up. Maybe talk a bit about just what the initial vision was for Anu and then what some of the key steps were from that initial vision to now. And those could be steps or milestones, but also evolutions, twists and turns, mistakes, lessons learned, like kind of take it wherever you want, but it'd be great to just get some color on how you got going. Our thinking around the questions as to what's going wrong, like systemically, what are the systemic flaws of the asset class of venture capital? That was basically really the starting point. And the lack of impact or the lack of specifically climate impact, I mean, impact, so to say, also here is a higher order that could also include social impact or other impact aspect. But climate impact for us, so to say, being the impact problem that we feel closest to and that we decided to devote ourselves to with some satellite interests also in biodiversity, water, etc. But climate is for us at the core. That has certainly always been the focal point. And not only in terms of how can we unlock more capital towards specifically climate technology, but also how can we drive scientifically sound impact methodology behind that to avoid greenwashing and truly, so to say, get to a point where ultimately we can compare impact returns apples for apples, in a way, horizontally, not only across different managers or receivers, but even across different asset classes at some point, even on a dollar or euro weighted basis, how can we get to that point so that impact becomes, so to say, as much benchmarkable for any financial product as the financial returns today in IRR and TBPI and DPI and whatnot are already today. This has been another importance for us. And beyond that, we have been looking into the, let's call it the liquidity problem in VC. There's not much of secondary markets, no tradable shares. You basically, the LP is locked up for 10, 12, often 14 years. When you look at the extensions that are not the exception, but the rule, would better liquidity options unlock more capital for climate tech? Maybe yes, yeah. But we've been also looking into accessibility. And the question, especially in Europe with the AIFMD regulation, is basically prohibiting, uh, let's say, middle-class people from investing in the asset class per se. So in Europe, this asset class is confined to the ultra-wealthy and the institutional investor. And therefore, so to say, exclusive, but I mean exclusive in a negative way, in an exclusionary way. So also the lack of accessibility is something that concerns us. And ultimately, the fourth aspect is the question around how can you increase the alignment of interest across the core stakeholders in venture capital, being first and foremost the founders, the manager, and the limited partner, and then planet, society, and others, academia, NGOs, around it. Yeah? And we believe that the traditional 10-year fund model will increasingly even now be challenged in the climate tech sector, where there's a lot of hardware, deep tech frontier that sometimes needs years just for product development and is often not ready to be exited, be a trade sale IPO within this traditional time frame that has been more designed, let's say, for software type of businesses, e-commerce, fintech that generate revenues in month three, month six, and are typically earlier ready to exit. So the 10-year fund model and also questions around you know, compensation, how can you increase alignment of interest also with regard to the carried interest model, all of these aspects, so lack of impact, lack of liquidity, lack of accessibility, lack of alignment. This is kind of 
what defined what concerns us and what has been defining our thinking. And without getting too academic or theoretical about it, we initially came up with a fund model that is basically that you could categorize as an evergreen with an infinite term that could also go much more powerful multi-stage and have a much more long-term alignment even to post-IPO and crossover, etc. with the entrepreneur. Some elements that you would know from TCV, now also then later a fundamental switch at Sequoia happened, which we were excited to see. Truly innovative, of course, in the institutional VC world, yet with a lot of scrutiny from the LP side. What we gorged, many were actually opposing and just consented because they wanted to retain access to the manager of Sequoia, not because they were actually supportive of the model that they came forward with the Evergreen structure and the redemption schemes and whatnot. And this is how we set sales. And we raised the first double-digit million euro amounts from our closer network of mostly other entrepreneurs and single-family offices from Germany, a bit from Switzerland, also some UK people from our past for whom we had money, made money before. We've had, let's say, a successful past track record with them. And that's how we got started. And they loved this structure that we set up because it was tackling or delivering solutions to these problems that I have just mentioned. Then later, after the first 9, 12 months, when we started going into the traditional institutional LP market, which in some soundings and let's say in some informal consultations also always, so to say, send supportive signals and excitement for the structure we had built. But when we then really, you know, went into that market, typically after a second or third meeting with all of the big European names that come to mind when you think of the European institutional P landscape, many, many said to us, mm, great, maybe the most inspirational structure and strategy we've seen in a long, long time. Exciting, but it's not market standard what you're doing. And with that structure, We've never done anything like that before, and it's just very unlikely we'll be able to get it through IC. Despite great team, great track record, convincing investment strategy, etc. And that basically put us in a position where we later were faced with the challenge of either, so to say, sticking to it for our convictions, but excluding also a significant part of the relevant institutional players from our LP base for the infinite future, basically, or adapting our structure in certain ways to a more, let's say, market standard DNA, which we ended up doing. But today, I'm not yet in a position to share those details. But this gives you, I think, yeah, a background on how we came about and how also conviction and, let's say, systemic thinking and problem centricity has informed our structure and strategy and how that then, so to say, partially, I would even say, clashed into the reality of a very conservative institutional LP market and how we then found the, so to say, the consensus that allowed us still to address those players and thrive and will make more detailed announcements on that when the time comes. You've hit on such an important conundrum in the sense that, I mean, it's not just venture as an asset class, it's our entire global economy that was built without factoring in the externalities of the you know pollution that we're dumping into the sky, right? And other otherwise. So we need to find a way to live more in harmony with you know the planet that we rely on to sustain us and other life forms, but our systems are deeply entrenched. 
is it better to increment and iterate on the existing system or start from scratch? And each approach has big trade-offs. The increment approach is like, well, but we're really just kind of doing it the existing way, but a little different. Like we're not changing hard enough or bold enough or fast enough, and we're never going to get there. But if you start from scratch, it's like, well, but all the leverage that comes from the big players and the big wallets and the big might is so entrenched that it's going to be too different and too scary and too unknown. And so they're going to sit on the sidelines. I don't know what the question is in there, but like that's a tension that I'm living every day. And I think that a lot of people that work in climate are living every day. And I can't wait to hear the details of where you ended up because like for us, for example, we went out of the shoot with a 10-year fund. And it isn't necessarily because we think that that's what's best. It's because like we're already an emerging manager. We already have non-traditional portfolio construction and strategy. Like we already have a non-traditional team. How much non-traditional can there be? Like now we're going to also go out with a non-traditional structure. You know, we need to keep something familiar. I really empathize with what you're talking about here. That's exactly the point. You can only sort of say succeed while changing this and that many components or parameters in the equation at a time. And I think this is also my answer to the curveball, so to say, that you are throwing on the question, how does the development of new technologies and different ways, more sustainable ways of rendering products and services to existing demand, so to say, how does that interrelate to the transformation of the incumbent patterns, industries, products, corporates, policymakers? And and for us, our concept, when we talk about what we call impact capitalism, as so to say, the desired state evolving from the traditional liberal financial capitalism with its narrow definition of success measured purely in GDP and in private wealth that people are accumulating and blended maybe with a bit of power and a bit of fame, but that's it. And transitioning from there to this augmented, broader definition of success that always encompasses the planetary and the social net positive or negative outcomes of your entrepreneurial actions, your investment decisions, etc. When we speak about impact capitalism as kind of this desired state for our society to which we would like to contribute on micro level by allocating capital into highly impactful climate technology development, but also on a macro level with the policy interaction, the regulatory agenda, you know, feeding back our practitioners know-how into policymakers in Berlin, but also partially on European level. When we talk about this impact capitalism, for us, it's basically three elements to it. And the first one is the realization it is not going to work without the contribution of regulation and policy. And in Europe, especially also still, you know, five, 10 years ago, there was this widespread idea amongst entrepreneurs that said, oh, let's keep our heads down. Let's keep making money. Let's not take a political stance. It is only going to be to our detriment and let's not get involved. And policymaking is slow, is consensus seeking. I can't stand it. I'm the king in my castle and let's just keep going. And I think also in VC and private equity, this has been basically the mainstream mindset. And today we know how important it is to shift the goalposts in order to accelerate the desperately needed transition. And shifting the goalposts means, for example, putting a price tag on externalities. As that is completely changing the competitive landscape in a given industry where an incumbent player may have an 
in all terms attractive product, but it may be heavily polluting. And a product with maybe less features, maybe even at a higher price point from a sustainable newcomer is overnight at price parity or even cheaper by putting a carbon tax into play, by moving the goalposts. And in that respect, we are glad that things have you know gotten going with the European Union, Green New Deal, also the IRA. This is all helpful. It is, of course, also risky for investors. I think one of the key learnings also from the 2000 cleantech bubble was that many businesses got funded who were not in a position to ever in, say, 8, 10, 15 years time frame, get to a economically or financially sustainable operating model without all these subsidies, especially on the renewable energy side back in the days. So a lot of the money that has been lost in Europe and in the US in the wake of this first cleantech bubble has been lost because investors did not do a look through to the financial viability of the technologies they were seeking to fund and develop and scale in the absence of the subsidiaries or of the government aid. And therefore, it is good that it's in place, IRA, the EU Green New Deal, etc. But as an investor, we always must take this look-through approach and say it's nice if a government program accelerates the development and the rollout. It's good for everyone, not just for the company, also for society and our planet, our climate. But we must make sure we're not funding businesses that cannot ever survive without the subsidy. So regulation and policy is an important building block. We need it. And we also need it because reality shows that neither, let's say, average Joe as the consumer, 80, 90%, so to say, of the majority of our Western societies, nor many of the few percent of its leaders and elites, in, be it in policy, corporate, finance, entrepreneurs, academia, whatnot, are actually willing to fundamentally change the way they behave in their leadership roles or in their consumer roles just based on the insight of understanding, oh, we're fucked, basically, climate-wise. This is what reality shows us. People, there's a few, of course, progressive, small group who would sacrifice some of their consumption habits and their lifestyle and their long-distance first-class travel and whatnot and their Kobe beef-eating and there are muscle cars who would sacrifice because they gain this insight and they realize it's just not the right thing to do right now. Yeah, And maybe when I have sustainable fuel, when my car is electrified and I put 100% renewable electricity into my battery, then I can hit the gas again. But right now, it's not the right thing to do. This is a tiny, tiny minority. The vast majority needs this reframing in order to change behavior. They're not doing it on their own. Insight alone is not going to make them change enough and fast enough to save us all. And that basically goes to the second aspect, behavioral change. We see the behavioral change as the second important pillar of the transition to impact capitalism really across all these stakeholders that I mentioned, from, so to say, the broad population all the way to the elites. And this behavioral change, we should see that we frame it in a positive way. We give it purpose, that we give it context rather than just working with prohibitions or punitive taxations. Because then what you see happening is what Emmanuel Macron suffers in France uh, with the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, all these protests. It's important, so to say, to frame the nudges in a positive way where people understand the context of why it's so important and relevant also to themselves and maybe their children and grandchildren to actually embark on the cumbersome journey of changing your habits. And then the third aspect is the mobilization of retail and also institutional capital 
towards climate impact investing that's on the one hand side contributing to the further ubiquity or to the further rollout of existing proven technologies such as in renewable energy. We have it all there. Yeah, the ingredients are there on the table. Now go bake the cake at a global scale. And on the other hand, and that's where we come into play and other venture capital and growth equity players, developing additional technologies that can become as globally relevant and impactful as, for example, the photovoltaic or the wind power industry, which hasn't been around 20 years ago and today is in technologically mature, everywhere accessible, and where even, especially here in Europe, in terms of price parity or feature parity is maybe a, not an applicable concept on electricity, but where we have achieved price parity. And today, solar power is the cheapest kilowatt hour that you can get even compared to coal, gas, nuclear. So everything comes together and such a perfect example for the intersection. After some, you know, it takes years, maybe even a decade or two, but where the second, third, fourth technological generation and the mass market adoption ultimately gets a new technology that seems cumbersome and too expensive and maybe doesn't have feature parity on day one, where ultimately the ecologically reasonable and right thing to do intersects with the economically or financially most attractive thing to do. And then then we reach this point where it all comes together and where nothing is going to stop the mass market adoption. And this, we are maybe on the brink of getting there with e-mobility, in some areas, infrastructure, charging and whatnot, in some areas of countries faster than in others. But this is, I think this is going to happen. And then micro mobility and long distance and different types. But I think it's going to happen. We also need to get there when it comes to nutrition, the mass market adoption of alternative proteins, be it plant based, be it at some point lab based. Again, regulation is a big showstopper or a big sort of say, hurdle for especially the lab based. Essentially, we need industry by industry and let's say emissions cluster by emissions cluster. We need to undergo this fundamental transition. We believe will always be driven by these elements of creating the right regulatory policy environment, um, nudging behavioral change through insight and through creating understanding where also education comes into play or where education intersects with climate almost. Yeah? And of course, climate technology development and its underlying finance. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. I have a bunch of just practical questions I want to ask you about, like, fund strategy and check size and, you know, do you lead and what sectors and what types of entrepreneurs you want to hear from. We need to make sure to cover that. That's like housekeeping. But here's the real question after what we've talked about so far in the almost 45 minutes that we've been talking. You worked at a traditional VC 
And in that experience working at traditional VC, you try to start a climate sleeve within the traditional VC and ultimately realize that it wasn't big enough to kind of have the impact and it wasn't disruptive enough and that you needed to leave the nest and have a fresh start. I know from the experience out raising our first institutional, our second fund, our first time, including institutional LPs over the last, whatever, since the beginning of the year. And, you know, now we're well over halfway and we have, you know, several institutional commits and stuff. So like, we're still in the thick of it, but we're not nowhere. Like we've turned a corner, we're going to get it done. But I know from doing that, that there's a bunch of people that are the equivalent of what you are, were at Early Bird in traditional institutional LPs that are trying to push them to do more in climate because of some of the reasons that you're articulating that are banging their head against the wall. And even the ones that have dedicated climate sleeves, I would imagine that some of those are going to feel like you felt when they're sitting in the institutional piece, like, hey, it's better than if we did nothing, but it's not nearly big enough. It's not nearly comprehensive enough. Like, we need to play a much bigger role and do a lot more. So here's my question for you. You left to start anew. What does the equivalent look like as an institutional LP who's banging their head against the wall within an existing firm? If they set out to build something from scratch, what should it look like? Great question. Great idea. <laughs> the context but is you not need an to easy, change yeah. your structure now. You need to change your structure now to pander to the existing system. That's holding back your structure. What does the system need to look like to not hold back your structure? You see what I'm getting at? No, I totally get it. It's a great idea that I think some individuals, so to say, may have asked or may have pounded their head about it. But there's, at least in Europe, there's not been much happening so far. At least it's visible in the market. And I wish it were. And, and essentially what you're asking is basically how does, so to say, the upstream counterpart on the financial... Yeah, because shit rolls downhill. So until they change, <laughs> we can't change, right? Absolutely, yeah. What does it look like? You know, if I were an institutional asset manager, I believe there absolutely is a market opportunity to build, so to say, a pension fund 2.0. There's some fund of funds going into that direction, most of which, however, are coming, so to say, from the established platforms. It's more that sleeve that's still, you know, sitting in the same governance and whatnot. So there's some movement, but there's no radical innovation in the LP ecosystem. Absolutely right. And that radical innovation. If it were to happen, then I think authenticity in terms of climate impact is key and adopting super rigorous methodology is key because that's exactly the Achilles heel of the traditional landscape out there. There's so much greenwashing. There's so much you know, just under the hood, basically trying to preserve their existing process legacy, their decision-making criteria while at the same time feeling the urge to tick boxes, put some logos or some labels on their products. That's Achilles heel. That's the dirty little secret of the financial industry or the asset management industry, including the LP industry and alternatives. And I wish there were a handful of bold and yet experienced enough. They have to come with track record. I mean, the institutional financial landscape is probably equally conservative to say you want to build a water grid or an electricity grid or the railway grid. <laughs> this is basically in the same, you know, this is about the slowest industries to evolve the most conservative mindsets that you can find anywhere. And overcoming that is certainly not going to be a walk in the park, but I think it could be done. And maybe it could be done also in a, let's say, in a horizontal way where you would not only sort of say service the traditional clients of 
the large institutional managers, but where you would maybe even coming back to the aspect of accessibility and democratization, where you would even find ways and there also regulatory comes into play and structuring is, is complex, it's cutting edge, where you would find a way of allowing young professionals and younger generations with smaller checks access into our asset class while still, you know, maintaining a high quality bar and a high quality hurdle in order to avoid all of the pitfalls that we have seen in the very democratized industry of crypto and DeFi, where there's no quality gates and so many retail people are losing so much money because they are not in a position to sort of say in an institutional way assess the quality of the investment opportunities that are presented to them. This is sort of say the other extreme, like the radical democratization without quality gates doesn't work. And the current way of the institutional landscape also doesn't work because it's completely exclusionary. So where do you find that middle ground? And that's the innovation opportunity in institutional finance that may be tackled, hopefully will be tackled. I would be all for it. So if anyone's listening here who wants to step down from Cambridge Associates for Aberdeen, Standard, or Adams, and go for it, please give me a call. I'll tell you, that's one thing I'm getting out of this process in addition to slowly assembling the capital so that we can run our business, is I'm assembling a collection of frustrated people on the inside that are banging their heads against the wall. So who knows? <laughs> and I know some of them listen to the show too. So maybe you'll inspire some people. But similar question, and I might make some enemies for this one, but similar to how there's people banging their head against the wall within the existing institutions and the existing institutions, deeply entrenched culture and things like that. I don't know how you feel, but I kind of feel that way about like the impact investing world with a capital I as well, where you know there's a lot of good effort. There's been people that have been doing it for a long time. But for example, we are motivated by impact. We are out there trying to have the biggest impact that we can. It's like our North Star. It's why we do what we do. But if we talk to, let's say, an impact capital allocator, right, we'll get a questionnaire and it's a long questionnaire. And I feel like a lot of the questions are stuff that like you can't do as a startup fund because you need a whole team of people. It's like bureaucracy. It's like red tape. I just wonder if there's people banging their head against the wall in there and they're going to set out and start fresh. Like it's kind of the same question as I just asked about the traditional glass-eating capitalist capital allocators? Like, what about from the impact side? How do you feel about that? And what should that look like if someone were going to start from scratch? The fundamental problem looking at the impact side of things, institutional capital allocation, is that the vast majority of players also that we have in our data room, etc., they do not, at least today, do not differentiate sufficiently between what can be, so to say, in a realistic way, what data sets are realistically available also on the underlying asset basis in the portfolio. They do not sufficiently differentiate between what can early stage climate VC deliver versus a growth stage or a late stage investor with a huge asset and chief impact officers and five people on the impact team that are doing nothing but data gathering, compliance reporting. Yeah. Or even venture on fund five or fund 10 versus fund one. Even right? fund 10, yeah. And then even horizontally, I mean, we see that even sometimes the questions that I ask are even the same across asset classes. So there's too little differentiating spirit, so to say, checking reality 
and theoretical catalogs of questions that have been, so to say, compiled in a more academic way. Yeah? This is, I think, the biggest, the single biggest problem. And that's actually even backfiring in a way that we see here and there managers that would be motivated to step up into Article 9 by European terms, but are actually holding back because they fear that they will not be able to comply with the reporting requirements that the LPs that are also then actively investing for it will have that substantially exceed the regulatory requirements. It's really just their internal standards. So it's even holding back, so to say, the flow of capital into higher impact product categories. And that's a pity. And it's still early days on the other hand side. Yeah, I mean, it's good that the European Union has stepped forward and put this regulation in place to create market segmentation, Article 6, Article 8, Article 9 at all. I mean, when you look into other jurisdictions, there is no such distinction. Managers are just putting some claims forward or just they are just, so to say, judging in their own case what they are, how they qualify. So it's a good first step to create uh, distinct categories. But the devil is in the detail. And a lot of, let's say, the practicability is not yet there. And that's, again, yes, it is policy that's set within the institutional LP landscape on impact is playing into it and their willingness, so to say, to adapt and differentiate across different products and what they can ask realistically. But it's also an interplay again then with the regulatory landscape. And that's also why it's so important that us as practitioners are trying and taking the time and making the effort of feeding back input to the policymakers in the end of the day, only if these, you know, if these are two-way roads and only if these communication channels are established, then we can jointly make the most effective and most rapid contribution to this desperately needed transition. I don't want to ask any questions that are going to get you in trouble from a compliance standpoint. So if I am, just don't answer it. But what I'm trying to get at is, are you open for business and what percentage of your fund is raised? And if you can't answer that, the reason I'm asking it is that I'm trying to gauge, and it's you know another thing that we're working through as well, is if you look at our portfolio construction and our check size and things like that, it's all based on you know a fund at Target. And while we're confident we're going to get to Target, we've still got a decent amount to go. And so how do you balance sticking your strategy with you know not knowing for sure what your final fund size will be? And after getting that out of the way, then I just want to talk through just like the housekeeping of like, well, what's your strategy? Do you lead and what stage? And like, you know, who do you want to hear from? All that. It is helpful to have that context as well of just where you are in the process. If you're just starting out, you know, everyone has a strategy till they're punched in the face. You know, some <laughs> funds, we've heard from several LPs that, you know, they backed three funds in the last 12 months and two out of the three stalled out on their fundraise and didn't even get to halfway. And now they're stuck. That's why I ask. So the reality is that we have already raised a substantial amount, a new one, which is a 140 million fund and already first closing actually was... That was what you called the MVP? No, the MVP was a couple of million, the pilot phase 2021. That was only our private capital, technically. I mean, we were also, my brother and I, and also alongside our partners, Shawan, we are also substantial LPs in our own fund. So we have a way above average GP commitment, but we are not in a position to put a 140 million fund as a single LP. And we've raised a substantial amount of that and already were fortunate basically to already have a first closing that was north of half of that fund size and are starting to gear up for a final closing still. And already today, you know, we're building a portfolio. So we're in similar spots. We are like tracking. Anyways, we can talk more offline, but our journeys are very similar. So we are seeking 
in that first institutional fund generation after the pilot, as you, as you say, yeah, we're seeking to build a portfolio of 30 to 35 logos, seed and series A. Sometimes we do a pre-seed bet. Typically, if there's a strong serial entrepreneurial background, often people that we know already or have kind of established trust bases from previous stints. But the core focus is seed and smaller series A. So we typically don't touch rounds that are larger than 10 million. And our initial checks are typically between one and a half and four million. We like to co-lead. Sometimes we also might take a strong follower role next to tier A generalists, has happened. Minimum, for example, in UK, uh, where NEA then came in, we also invested alongside the Creandum, Energize, etc. at Monta, for example, in EV charging infra software in Denmark. We have many co-investments with lower carbon capital, with breaks for energy. And they also, of course, here with the MCJ fund, some of the carbon removal companies like Charm, Heirloom, Running Tide, Undo in UK is doing really well. We've already built up more than half of the logos from a portfolio construction standpoint, but we'll continue to invest for the next 18 or so months from this first vintage. Energy transition, carbon removal, probably our two strongest verticals also in terms of the associated, the assigned internal practice groups. Every deal is done by domain expertise and by competence within our team, not by relationship or who saw it first. Besides that, we have an interest in the decarbonization of several heavy industries. We also have a pocket for ecosystems, some activity or some deals here on biodiversity, biodiversity MRV, for example. This is basically our scope and focus on Western and Northern Europe, Seed Series A. Anyone in that scope, please reach out and happy to talk. And really, when you think of what's in for you as an entrepreneur, our edge or our value add is typically defined along four dimensions. And the first one is the entrepreneurial sparring, the experience that three of our partners have from five, six of their own businesses, including failures, but also including unicorns and trade sales to Google and whatnot, the entrepreneurial experience. It's the impact know-how. Harvard, Yale graduates on our team, LCAs, impact modeling, reporting, measurement, governance, impact workshops, pre-post investment. It's B2B market access, especially on the continental European enterprise landscape. We are quite good at it for UK, also sometimes for US-based companies coming into Europe. And the fourth one is capital formation where we've just looking back at a 15 years of having raised from inside, from SoftBank, ourselves, and worked with from NEA, KPCB, General Catalyst, Temasek, you index Excel, you name it. So there's almost no, but also then, as I said, into the Article 9 or Impact Landscape, anyone up to TPG or Generation IM or Lightrock. So there's almost no relevant Series B, C-Round investors where we wouldn't have had touch points in the past 15 years with. And these four angles, entrepreneurial experience, impact know-how, B2B market access, capital formation, these are basically defining our edge to the entrepreneur. And, and we're also actually asking ourselves, for every opportunity we look at, would we be a value-additive shareholder for this company? Or even if the opportunity might be attractive to us, is someone else in a better position to do that deal? Great. Well, we could easily spend another hour here, but I know we've got a wrap. So I guess my final question is just, well, I guess two final questions. One is, who do you want to hear from and what's the best way to reach out for anyone that's inspired by your work and firm and wants to get in touch with you? And the second question is just anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners. 
Who do you want to hear from? Well, I think when I look across the audience, or let's say the people that you're featuring on the MCJ podcast, I would be curious, and I once had the chance to meet and ask him a few questions, but I would be curious for you to interview Sir Ronald Cohen, the founder of Apex, the large PE buyout firm, who's been, in my point of view, basically the thought leader on the overall, not just climate impact, but overall impact movement in Europe across technology financial industry, but also into policy and government, and really hear what's his take on how we have come about. He's into this since 20, 30 years, more than any of us, at that altitude, not just in terms of, oh, I'm going to get on a train, but really, you know, he's been into it for decades and I think a very inspiring person to interview. And then lastly, what you could have asked, I mean, you know, we're all working in this very high paced, very competitive environment. And but sometimes also odd that on the one hand side, we're all trying to optimize for impact while still staying competitive also on the financial part of what we do. Otherwise, it's charity, a different asset class. And at the same time, of course, we are also frenemies or partially competing, partially collaborating. And these lines often blur. And personally, at Anu, we take a, we try to take a very collaborative approach. I've also open sourced almost the entirety of our impact methodology for the benefit of other practitioners and also across other, you know, NGO, academia, corporate, you know, chief sustainability officers, etc. So we try to not create secret sauce, but the more the merrier and try to be influential beyond our circle of control. And this is a message I would like to get across. And I wish, so to say, for our industry to preserve this idea of collaboration for the greater cause and the idea that one plus one is more often three than it is 1.5 in some. And I hope that, that in our industry, we can build a culture that is less elbows driven and that is less cutthroat also when it comes to sustainability in the workplace and allowing access to people to capital but also access into working in impact we see that may have not have that access with their cvs or their paper forms in the traditional uh, let's say cutthroat generalist vc world now we can maintain that and build a different culture a culture that's more sustainable really in the inner sense not only eco-sustainable climate sustainable but also socially sustainable for everyone involved build a new culture in impact we see that is dramatically different from the one that we've seen in the legacy industry. Well, some of the best episodes are ones that not only answer questions, but raise additional ones. And this episode was certainly that. All of my pistons are firing. So Fabian, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. Really fascinating and intellectually stimulating discussion and looking forward to following your progress with the new and also finding more ways to collaborate as well. So thank you for your work. Pleasure was mine. Jason, thanks for having me. And we certainly keep in touch. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.